This is Parsha Panorama. This week's Parsha is Parsha Shoftim here at the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg. And with Parsha Shoftim, it's actually very easy to forget how we got here. The Parsha begins pretty innocently with a command, the mitzvah, Shoftim, Shoftim, Titan, the Chabachol, Sha'arecha. Moshe Rameinu instructs the Bnei Israel to instate judges and officers in all of their gates. And if we, again, neglect to look back at where we came from, we won't really have a full picture of what this Parsha is about. And as all of the Parshios, or at least the majority of the Parshios, say for Devarim, we keep on saying, keep on saying that it's, a, it's one long speech from Moshe Rabbeinu, so we want to try to understand what this section of Moshe Rabbeinu's speech is about. Not only that, but we mentioned last week that Moshe Rabbeinu really opened up a new topic, which is apparently going to take us through at least the next couple of weeks. That is because Moshe Rabbeinu has already directed our attention to the command, or really the the blessing curse, the covenant, that which I'm placing before you today, which is going to be elaborated on, um, that which is going to take place at Harival and Hargrizim. And we know that that particular covenant, which isn't even going to take place until Sefer Yehoshua, that does not actually get discussed at length until Parshas Kisavo. So we have another couple of weeks until that actually happens. So what we tried to argue last week is that apparently everything that's in the confines of Parshas Re through to that piece of the Torah in Parshas Kisavo is a part of a special speech that Moshe Rabbeinu is now communicating after already having reviewed the history that Klai Yisrael has experienced and how that was relevant to Moshe Rabbeinu's messages to the Bnei Yisrael about Avodah Hashem, Hashkafa in general, approaching the Torah, serving Hashem and fulfilling the Torah, all of those things. So now Moshe Rabbeinu has pointed us to the future. That's what we saw in Re'eh, no pun intended. But um, Re'eh was telling us to look forward towards the future. And that means that as we're no longer looking back, but we are looking ahead, now, everything that's being commanded here should somehow be relevant to that direction. So now, again, looking forward towards the future, Moshe Benu, with that in mind, commands the Bnei Yisrael, Shoftim Shotrim, Titan Sharecha. You shall now in, in state judges and officers in your gates. This apparently is something that's relevant when they enter Eretz Yisrael. Moshe Benu is now telling them one thing that I think is important for you to do, um, when you enter the land, among other things. So we told them about, um, uh, you know, Olaregel, um, all, the, all the, the things you're supposed to do to the Avodah when you get there, destroy the Avodah um, You shouldn't, um, you know, listen to a, a false Navi. We spoke about the idea of Hashem being master over the entire world, but the focus of, that, of the point at which um, Hashem's mastery emanates from is from Yerushalayim, the Makom HaShar So we spoke all about that. And now you're in the land, you, you, you appreciate all of that. Now we've got to make sure that we have some checks and balances, therefore Shoftim and Shotrim. So we have Moshe Rabbeinu paying attention to law enforcement. And that's actually what we find when we think about the Shotrim. Literally, the enforcers, um, as, as, um, as Rashi tells us, uh, the, the Shoftim are the lawmakers. Um, now, we don't really mean lawmakers in the sense that they're actually making and creating laws, but they are the ones who are interpreting the statutes of the Torah, as it were. Um, and so we, we ha- you know, they, they're acting as Dayanim, as Postkim. 
and the shotim are the ones that make sure that people listen and do it. So the officers, great. So we see the Torah ascribes importance to law enforcement. Now, however people treat that nowadays is a separate story. It's not going to be the last time that we're going to get political in this particular Parsha panorama, so just buckle up. But now we have to try to get an understanding of what the Parsha at large is about, because this is obviously just one command in stating judges and officers. What else? So what we're going to see as we look at this component of Moshe Benu's speech, we're going to have a lot of new mitzvah topics, but they all seem to have something in common, as we're going to elaborate on. But I would first say that at, that, that at first glance, we have really two sections in Parsha Shoftim. We could make the argument later that maybe they're really one section, but it looks like two sections, one segueing into the other. The first section is, um, again, among these different laws for the land, we have the institution of various authority figures, and what that means is we're going to notice two categories of people, I think, that the Torah highlights, that Moshe Rabbeinu highlights in Parsha Shoftim. We have leaders of the establishment, and then we have the rebels who are anti-establishment. We have the leaders of society and those who are anti-social or anti-society, people who, who you should look out for and, and people that we should try to eradicate from within the community. So we're going to, and we'll, you'll notice, we'll keep on going back to that. We'll have like a leader, and then we'll have like an anti-leader. Okay, so that, that's one theme that we find in Shoftim. We're going to see various leadership figures in Shoftim, which seems to be, again, one of the overarching themes of the Parsha. The other aspect of the Parsha that um, seems to be somewhat of its own topic is the topic of war and various ethics for war, which um, you might think in a certain sense is almost a contradiction, right? War is, is violent, aggressive, it's killing, it's the execution of human beings. And yet we're going to see that even there, the Torah does not neglect to give us an important opinion about what the right way to do it is. There are halachos um, that govern all these things. I'll mention also that what we have in Shoftim is something that we've been able to identify in several parshios in Sefer Devarim, and that is we have bookends that tell us where the parsha begins and where the parsha ends. If the Masora itself didn't do it, so um, we could make the argument that you would have been able to identify the end of Shoftim, because Shoftim begins talking about judges and it ends talking about judges. We have at the very tail end of the parsha, we have um, Egla Arufa, um, so, and, and that, that, that case talks about the very end that the Shoftim and the Zakanim have to come and they have to address it. There's a whole ritual. What happens when you find a, a fallen carcass, a fallen um, individual? We don't know how he was killed, and we have to address that. There's a whole ritual where they have to address that and, and achieve atonement for the fallen individual. Now, although. This is, um, and this is the case that we have a sort of a bookend. Starts with Shoftim, ends with Shoftim. Um, and we saw similar cases where Re'e last week began with the command to see, and it ended with the command Ye'ra'e to be seen. And we saw with Akev, which opens up talking about consequences and finishes talking about consequences. We had Veschanan, which has the theme of Chain in both the beginning and end of the Parsha. So here we have Shoftim. And um, it could be that, you know, we're just seeing things, but these are just, I think, very, um, I, I, I think they are noteworthy at the very least. 
But while we have that, while we have um, what you can argue is a good bookend to the Parsha, we can make a separate argument that maybe if we were the ones dividing up the Parsha, that we would have made Parsha Shoftim just a little bit longer. Now, who would ever choose to make a Parsha longer? Well, the question is, if the war series begins in Parsha Shoftim, which it does, those words sound familiar, but not from this week's Parsha. They sound familiar from next week's Parsha, Parsha's Kiseitse. But the first time that we find those words, they actually appear here in our Parsha, in Parsha Shoftim. So you can make one of two, uh, one of two arguments. Right, one of two arguments. Either that from next week's Parsha should have really started earlier, should have started in this week's Parsha. Right, there are two times that the Chumash says at the very least, once in this week's Parsha, once at the beginning of next week's Parsha. So why don't you just have one big Parsha's Kiseitse? Um, Parsha's Kiseitse is already pretty big. But really, if it begins talking about war, which in next week's Parsha it does talk about war, it talks about the Afas Toar, which is uh, the war captive. So you can make the argument that the Parsha should have started here, and you just have the entire war Parsha be one Parsha, and maybe um, you know we. Um, I guess you could theoretically add another Parsha later, or you can just have Kisetsi being a little bit longer. Um, maybe we're trying to avoid that, but still we have it seemingly the war series. It starts in Shoftim, it continues into Parsha's Kisetsi. Maybe a separate question we can ask is why are there two Kisetsis, right? Um, and and what I'll say is that apparently there are, there are two. You can say chapters or two parts to this war series. One part that begins in this week's Parsha, one part that begins in next week's Parsha. But we will have to address, since clearly there is a war series going on here within the Torah, so why is there um, this break in the middle? Why are there apparently two parts? What I'll also add to the question is the Parsha, at least here, our Parsha, our Sidra, ends with... Egla Arufa, which at first glance doesn't really have anything to do with war. It does have to do with a casualty, a person dying. But the person who dies in the story of Egla Arufa is not a casualty of war. He is someone who was killed. Um, he was murdered. Right? When someone kills in the middle of war, that's um, you know, um, in a regular scenario where you're killing your opponent, that's not called murder. That's just called war. And um, we even, in, even morally, we'll differentiate between murder and, uh, and uh, a casualty of war. So that being said, Egla Rufa seems to be an interrupting cow, right? Um, and in this sense, it interrupts the war series. So we have a lot of questions here about the end of our Parsha, and we'll have to get to them. We'll first have to talk about the Parsha at large, but the reason I'm pointing this out here is that we always try to see the connection between Parshios, and especially when we're trying to understand Moshe Rabbeinu's very long speech. So we see that we have a war series that's going to begin in Shoftim. It's somehow going to continue or pick up again in Parshas Kisetse. So what I want you to think about, because we're not going to um, um, we're not going to be able to address every single question that I just laid out for you right now in this session. But while you are thinking about it, I want you to. Think about one again. All of these questions that we have, but also the 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 the, uh, the sequencing of topics in Shoftim. That's something that we try to have a larger picture of. Um, you know, every week we try to get a, a larger picture of the parsha. So now that you have these questions on your mind, um, it's something that you can hold on to 
because it's going to continue into next week, just to give you that disclaimer right now. But what happens in between everything? So we talked about the beginning of the Parsha, we talked about the end of the Parsha. Our Parsha begins talking about judges, it ends talking about Egla Rufa, and there is a war series somewhere in the middle. So let's just fill in the blanks that we so far have still left out. Okay, so with that, we again begin with Shoftim, we end with uh, a war series that somehow gets interrupted by Egla Arufa. But in between, so all of the subjects together in the Parsha, I have nine sections to the Parsha, a lot here. So the beginning is the Shoftim and Shotrim, which has its own little mini section that talks about also an Isser of planting Asheros uh, or an idolatry, right, a tree of idol worship next to the Mizbeach and erecting Matsevos of Avodazara and offering blemished animals. And then in this section, the Chumash continues with the various laws pertaining to the courtroom. Um, and it, it specifically highlights how we're supposed to prosecute an idolater, Noved Avodazara, and there it talks about the general rules of court and the rules of Eidos, etc. Now, in Muslim Minutes earlier this week, we addressed the question of why do you have the, the command about Nasheira and the Mizbeach and a Matseva? Like, well, what is this all doing here? And what do Karbanos have to do with being a judge? Right? You can't offer a blemished Karban or you can't um, offer a Karban that's pigle, that you had the wrong technical intentions of when you were going to consume the meat of the Karban. Uh, so you, you had the wrong intentions, and therefore you shouldn't offer that. But what does that have to do with anything? Why is that relevant? So you can go back if you want to hear a nice full answer in Muslim minutes. We addressed it in under seven minutes. Um, but what I would say very simply is that what all these things have in common is they are all basically insults to the avoda at hand. If you're going to try to erect a matseva, which specifically God doesn't like, you're going to, uh, you're going to instate a judge that is corrupt. That's the, you know, the, the whole point of a judge is justice. He's going to accept a bribe. The Chumash tells us in this week's Parsha, um, a almost verbatim repeat of a Pasuk in Parsha's Mishpatim, that you can't accept a bribe because of what, the, what a bribe does to you. It, it blinds, it obstructs, it twists things. So you have, you're going to have someone in the justice system who is unjust. You're going to offer a carbon which doesn't follow the rules of carbonos. You're going to try to beautify the Mizbeach, with a tree of idol worship, all these things are internal contradictions. But for some reason, we you know we can understand that maybe with carbonos, and maybe even with carbonos we don't understand it. We always you know we tend to offer Hashem offerings that are not the most flattering. You know you daven, you're not having kavana. The whole point of davening is that Buddhists believe you're not going to have kavana. So you're going to offer a carbon that's uh, faulty. And so there are many times that we live with these internal contradictions. So you'll, you'll back a politician who is not, who is, who, you know, who is not just, who, who is corrupt, um, i.e. any politician today. So you're going to back one of them. So it's the same concept. Okay, fine. So um, th- that's section one, Shoftim and Shotrim, general rules of court, and all those other topics that were thrown in there just because. So then section two, we talk about other kinds of leadership figures, and we're going to get our first, maybe our second anti-leader, right? So the first, so we saw a bunch of anti-leaders already, the Shoft and the Shotrim, you have the corrupt versions of those judges, right? So now we have Kohen, Levi, and Shofet, the Chumash continues talking about Shoftim. The rule, uh, the, 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 or I should say the role, not just as a judge, but as a posik. Right, so the Kohen and Levi, they were also they they had roles where they were teaching Klal Yisrael, much like Rabbeim today, 
And they are in contrast in section two to the Zakin Mamre. The Zakin Mamre is someone who is poskening specifically against the majority and telling everyone that they should follow his view. The Zakin Mamre is Chayv Misa. So we have Shoftim Shotrim and corrupt versions of them. We have the Kohen Levi and Shofei and then the Zakin Mamre on the other hand. Then section three, we have the laws of the Melech. Hamelech, right? Just to throw in a little bit of a Baltvila workshop here. So, um, and especially since we're thinking about this as we are in Chodesh El, Hamelech Basada. So, uh, couldn't find a more appropriate time to learn about the laws of a Melech. What is the role of a Melech? And there's a, although there's a lot to be said in the, in the realm of Musser for this, we're going to focus just mainly on the most basic rule of the king. And that is that he's really not supposed to be like a regular Goyesha king, not like a Gentile king. The Gemara says you should go out of your way to see both kinds of kings so that you can tell the difference between the two. And recognize that the Jewish king is supposed to be a Yorei Shemayim. Um, in fact, he's not only supposed to, but he's commanded. He's, um, literally, he's supposed to have a separate Sefer Torah just for the purpose of learning Yeras Shemayim. So he has his own extra Sefer Torah, so on and so forth. You could say the contrast, the anti-leader of the Melech is the king who doesn't do these things. But okay, he's a leader of society. Yes, it's a monarchy, but yet there was apparently a Torah successful way that it could have been done, even though we, you know, we, we, don't, um, we, may, we, we may prefer democracy nowadays. Um, but um, there was apparently a way that, it, that, that not only worked, but it was, it was ideal. Okay, so uh, again, number one, we have Shoftim Shotrim. Number two, we have Koen Levi Shofet versus the Zakin Mamre. Three, we have the Melech. Four, we have to address this. It's a little bit of a difficult um, issue. We have the laws of the Kohanim and the Levium again. We're going back to Koen Levi, talking about their, their lack of inheritance of land, and Israel, and special gifts that they receive from the Karbanos. So the, sep- so the basic question you can ask is, why is this section separate from the Kohen Levi Shofet section in section two? Right, we, so we just did Kohen Levi Shofet, Zakin Amri, then back to Melech, so we went to Melech, and then back to Kohen Levi. So why we go in that direction? So the Balaturim um, suggests a couple of different answers that you can look it up inside. He talks about how the king is supposed to be anointed by the Kohen Gadol, which is why we go back. So the, the king is almost um, sandwiched by, by laws pertain- that, that, that reference the Kohen. Um, he, the the Balaturim also mentions that the king holds responsibility of the Karbanos, which are discussed in this section. And he also mentions that just like the Kohanim receive gifts and the Levim receive gifts, the king also um, is entitled to certain gifts, certain tributes that he's supposed to receive from the congregation of Kalal Yisrael. So those are just a couple of connections. Um, and you can look and see if you could survey the Mepharshim to find some more. Um, the Mepharshim are not so vocal about this issue, but it is an interesting issue that it goes from Kohen Shofet, um, uh, Zakin Mamre, to Melech, and then back to the gifts that the Kohen is supposed to get. Then, section five, we get to various abominable practices, such as sorcery, black magic, molech, necromancy, or necromancy, whatever the proper pronunciation for that is. Um, so we have those abominable practices. These And the practitioners of these, uh, of these um, practices are the anti-leaders. They're, they're among the outcasts of our society. They are contrasted from the chosen Navi. Right? Hashem says, I gave you a Navi who communicates with me. That's how you learn my Ratzon. You don't need to tell the future. Whatever I reveal to the Navi, that's what's relevant to you. Whatever, um, you know, whatever is in the Torah, that's what's relevant to you. You don't need anything else. You don't need, you don't need Ov, you don't need Menachesh, Ma'onin. You don't need any of these things. No, you don't need Kishof. And then the, the Chumash goes back and tells us about another anti-leader, 
the Navi Sheker. So we spoke a little bit about Navi Sheker in last week's Parsha, but the Chumash comes back to it here, probably um, um, not only to, to, to allude to new commands that are related to it, but to continue to draw this depiction that we are also trying to give you in the panoramic view, we have leaders and anti-leaders. So you have practitioners of things like black magic and you have false prophets, and then there's the chosen of Yav Hashem. So um, other kinds of authority figures. Then we go, um, we actually um, jump back to Parsha's Masse. We learn a little bit more about the cities of refuge. And here, the Chumash highlights the um, different kinds of murderers. We have unintentional murders, murderers versus premeditated murderers. And here we um, have to address the question of why would we discuss this topic? Weren't these topics already discussed in Parshas Masse? So how are they relevant? Why do they bear repeating here? So um, we're going to see that this is actually relevant to the Bnei Yisrael's eventual entry into Eretz Yisrael, because here Hashem says, or really Moshe says, when Hashem expands the boundary, when you, when you, when you conquer more lands, which is going to be discussed in the war series, because there will be optional wars where they can, they can earn more land of Eretz Yisrael um, by, by, by uh, conquering, so they'll actually have to add new Aramiklat, cities of refuge, for those unintentional murderers. So, the Chumash highlights it here. This is not the only answer. There are some other um, ways to, to uh, address this issue. If Amnon Bazak actually has an essay where he talks about how Masse focuses really on the punishment for the somewhat accountable murderer, even though it's unintentional, but he has to go to Gullus. Whereas Shoftim focuses on the protection, society's responsibility to protect this individual. Because right? someone who's an unintentional murderer... It's, he's like in this quasi-state. He's not completely innocent, but he's not completely guilty either. And so the degree to which he is guilty, Masse focuses on you have to go to Gullus, whereas Shoftim talks about the rules and really the roles of the leaders who have to do their best to protect him. The degree to which he is innocent, and he's not completely innocent, but the degree to which he is innocent, so the Ari Miklot, they have to pave the way, they have to do their best to save him from the Goel Hadam, um, again, the, the amount to which he's entitled. So, um, therefore, that's what this part of the Chumash focuses on. I would add another um, suggestion that this is um, this topic of the unintentional murderer versus the intentional murder, the premeditated murderer, is really connected between, um, to the topic that we just discussed of the two kinds of Nevi'im. You could have a Navi Sheker, and you can have um, uh, uh, the chosen Navi from Hashem. The difference between the two... Uh, um, you could say, you know, you, you might, um, you know, so you, you might want to have pity. You might have respect for the Navi Sheker because maybe in the past he did a miracle and you're like, wow, this guy's good. But if you do have pity, and the Chumash specifies you should not pity him, but if you do have pity, that would be like having pity on an intentional murderer. You know, get it, letting him get off, letting, letting him go to Gullus, which he's not entitled to doing. But you might have this, this attitude, similar to Shal HaMelech, having pity on Agag, and that's not okay. You let a murderer on the loose, and, that, and, and what you're doing, essentially, is you're letting a murderer on the loose. So that, that's not a place for that. Okay, so we have a few more sections. Um, we have the section of Hasagaz Gavul, which is an interesting section, and this is in one little paragraph with more laws of Eidos. We talk about the difference between Edom Ksherim, 
kosher edim versus edim zomamin. Right, Maseches Makos, learning about the rules ka'asher zamam that you have to uh, when you have plotting witnesses who they got together and they accused the guy of doing something and then we found out that they were somewhere else right another set of Adam comes and says hey you guys were with us at that time so they become they, they are deemed zomamin and they get whatever they plan to do to the litigant that they um, that, that they they accused. And these individuals are also anti-society, right? You got to get rid of them. Everyone, has, this has to be announced. These are people that are that are um, that are a menace to society, and therefore we have to get rid of them. So this section is put with a sagas gavul because we're focusing now. And why um, if we have why are we having more courtroom laws here? We had courtroom laws at the beginning of the parsha. Just put the section with the first section with shoftim and shotrim. So some of the mafarshim address this question as well. And it has to do with, um, so the um, Balturim focuses on this a little bit. Um, and uh, and uh, well, the, the basic idea that we find in Balturim and the Nitziv is earlier in the partial we were talking about Dine Nefashos. Here we're focusing on Dine Mominos. And this, this is why it's connected to Hasagas Gavul, where you encroach on someone else's boundary. When you move someone's boundary marker over and you try to steal it, which is, again, what the Chumash connects this parsha to with the Adam Zomamin, so that is a form of stealing. And, what, what, and there are other connections between um, Hasagah's Gavul, encroaching on a boundary, and this parsha, and the, the Adam. So, for example, the Ibn Ezra tells us that there's actually a progression here. And the, you know, the Ibn Ezra works really hard to, to explain the progression of mitzvot in these parshios. And you, know, you should take a look at the Ibn Ezra's commentary. So here, he points out that there's, an, uh, there's a progression that when someone encroaches on a boundary, that can lead to disputes, which can lead to blows, and even possibly murder. So you have... Um, and then, then that's why Adam Zoman comes into play. So we, cause we, we focus on mostly Edos for Mominus, and then we go into Zoman from there. Um, the Balaturim points out that even for a Rotseach, which we just spoke about, even for a Rotseach, don't mistreat his assets. Right? You could think, oh, well, we're killing him anyway, so, so who cares about the property? Well, maybe he, uh, he, maybe he has legitimate heirs. So you can't just encroach on someone's boundary just because they're a murderer. You can kill them. Right, or at least the courtroom sue them, and then they'll be killed. But we don't um, attack their their assets. The um, the the Baltram also points out another connection that this this command about hasagas gavul is a limitation on Bezdin in terms of boundaries for Ari Miklat. Right, we just spoke about Ari Miklat a little while ago. So now we're saying Bezdin's limited; they can't encroach on someone else's boundary for the purpose of establishing an Ari Miklat. Um, I would also add that the previous section, which was referring to Hashem's promise to eventually expand the boundaries, so the Torah is telling us, yes, Hashem could, ex- could expand the boundaries, but you can't just go ahead and expand your boundary by encroaching on someone else's land. So Hashem could expand the boundaries, um, but, you, but you can't. Okay, so we have um, still a couple more sections to get to, but I'm just doing my best to keep uh, to keep you with um, you know, to keep you with me as we try to explain the various components of the parsha. But just to review once more um, where we are now. So we said that we spoke about the shoftim in the shotrim. We spoke about the Kohen Levi Shofet against the Zakin Mamre. We spoke about the Melech. We spoke about the gifts to the Kohanim and the Levim. We spoke about various abominable practices and how they and the Navi Sheker are both contrasted from the chosen Navi. 
And then we spoke about cities of refuge and how, how the courts are supposed to protect the unintentional murderer. Then we spoke about Hasagas Gvul and more laws of Eidos. Section 8, finally, we begin the war series. Here we have another leadership figure, the Kohen Meshuach Melchama. The, um, you, know, you can think of him as a chaplain, one of the original chaplains. And he is the one who gives the speech, the pep talk to the Bnei Israel. He also mentions the, um, the special um, leave of absence um, invite to the Chosre Me'archa Melchama, the returnees from war. Four different kinds of individuals. Machlok is exactly about what they are, but we have the, the person who just built a house, the person who just got married, the person who just uh, planted a vineyard, or the person who is afraid. And the Chazal have a machlokus about um, what does it mean the person's afraid? Who are we really, um, you know, is, are any of these really a cover up for that guy? Um, various discussions, but one of the first things we get is those individuals who, for whatever reason, the, the, the Torah commands they go home. Even though you might think, okay, it's war, war is war, people die at war, nothing to do about it, though, nonetheless, there are certain people that we say, no, these people should go home. Even though the death of any individual, one death is too many, right? But there are certain people that the Chumash says they should go home and do what they need to do because apparently the Torah values the, the, the endeavor that they were in the middle of, of achieving. So a lot to think about there, and this, this question is going to come back. So, so, and again, the question being... The Torah's war ethics. So, again, is, is that a contradiction or not? Presumably it's not, because the Torah has rules for the war. There are some people that even though, again, it's a normal thing that there are casualties in war, people die. Right? But there, nonetheless, again, the Torah is telling certain people to go home. So why exactly is that? Another important rule of war is the rule of She'elah Shalom. We offer peace. Now, this is a big difference between Melchames Roshos and Melchames Mitzvah, which the Chumash highlights right here. Melchames Roshos is a, is a Melchama to expand Eretz Yisrael. We want to get more land for Eretz Yisrael, and there is a place for war for this. It's a, we, we don't have the Torah, it's interesting, we don't have the Torah um, um, uh, signaling that war is bad. Apparently, war is a part of life. It's understandable. But the Torah does signal a difference between Melchemes Rishos and Melchemes Mitzvah. Melchemes Mitzvah is not where we're just expanding the borders of Eretz Yisrael, again with Hashem's help in, in that war effort, but the, the seven Canaanite nations, the land of Eretz Yisrael, which Hashem says is for us and only for us, and that there can't be any idolatry within that land. So the seven Canaanite nations, Lo Sechaya Kol Neshama. Not only does everyone have to go, even Akala Mechupasa, everyone has to go, but you can't let a single soul live, which seems very um, gruesome. It's very grotesque. It seems, you know, with, uh, the, the, it's, these kinds of things are queasy or for us. They make us queasy. They're nauseating. Like, how, how can you kill a child? And that's something that we're going to have to come back to also, even though we might not be able to give a fully satisfying answer. But we have Lo Sechaya Kol not a single soul should live. Um, if, if it helps a little bit, there's some who suggest, I think this comes up, I, th- I don't remember if Rashi says this, but there are some of Farshim, um, at least that say something to this end, that when it comes to killing um, the, when it comes to killing the, the children, so if we have reason to believe that there are families that are going to become, um, that, that, that they're going to renounce their and renounce and denounce their idolatry. So then we can spare those individuals. 
So that that would be an out for those for those families. But otherwise, in uh, in these communities where they were already offering their children up to Avodah and killing them with their own hands, so we can understand why maybe their death al kiddush Hashem, if we can call it that, is more ideal. But okay. So and now continuing the war series, we also have thrown in there the rule of Baal Tashchis, sparing the fruit trees, which also, if you consider what we just spoke about, is very strange. We apparently allowing us to kill all of our opponents, even if they are children, but don't waste the trees. Right? Kill the people, but save the trees. If it's a fruit tree, what did that tree do to you in, in your attempt to advance the war effort for the siege or whatever you're going to do? You can destroy trees that are sterile, that are infertile, but not the fruit trees. So, you know, like, it's a little bit strange. And I remember my, my Rebbe of Sachs was uh, making a similar point about this when we were talking about the Malacha of Tzad. Um, it came up when we were talking about trapping animals and things like that. And he said, you hear so many people, you know, they, they, they save the whales, save the polar bears. Meanwhile, they don't care about the homeless that are dying in the streets. You know, but, but you can ask that question here. Save the trees, and what about the people? We're allowing war. We're allowing you to kill the people. So why does the Chumash say, whoa, whoa, but if you see the trees, back up. Okay, and then we end off with Egla Arufa. So, what I want to drop the anchor for right now, and this is the topic that I really want to spend most time on, and this was going to be a separate topic. I was going to give this as a separate shear for the Real Talk Torah series, but things here at the database are a little bit backed up just because I've been a bit busy. So, we're going to discuss it here. And that's the issue of, is all really fair in Torah and war? And what... It keep, this keeps on coming up. The, the answer to that apparently not not not, not so not um, that not not everything is okay. And you, the, you may think like, what's the difference? Where do we draw the line, right? Because killing is killing, war is violence, it's aggression. It is what it is. So clearly, the Chumash has lines. First of all, we don't just do war with whoever we want. There are certain people that this Torah says you have to do war with. And there's certain people the Torah says, these people you don't have to do war with, and if you're going to do a war with them, then you have to offer them peace. Ethics. Now, not only that, but we said that not everybody goes out to war. It might depend what kind of war is it. But if it's a Melchemist or Shus, there are certain people that don't go out to war. A person who just got married doesn't go out to war. That's the easiest example to understand, to appreciate, that you might say, listen, you know, be a man, roll up your sleeves, get out there. It's war. You know, be, you know, take one for the team. He's an individual that we don't tell to take one for the team. Because apparently, the Torah values where he was up to in life. It's certain, and it's, it's not that, that his life necessarily matters than anyone else's life, but his, his particular um, timing, his circumstances right now, the Chumash apparently values that he's about to start a family. And in this particular moment of his life, as he's about to engage in that, in that effort, and there are other mitzvos, the, the other examples, that he's in the middle of beginning, the Chumash doesn't want to cut that off in the middle. Now, this, this apparent concern for various individuals, that the Chumash says, I want this person to go home, this also, you know, th- th- this drives home a point. That even within the world of war, even within the world of the possibility of lo sechaya kol neshama, that you can't even let a single soul live, the Chumash is telling us that life matters. 
There's not a color that's put in front of it. You know, but life matters. And that's what we learn, you know, from Egla Arufa. That's what we learn from the Ari Miklat. Think about this. The guy killed a person. And yes, he killed a person, but it was unintentional. But the, just the fact that it was unintentional does not mean that, that, he can't, he, that he doesn't have to do anything. He has no accountability or responsibility. He has to go to Gullus. But just because one guy was killed, we don't say tid for tad that now this guy should be killed. Yes, the Goel Adam is allowed to chase him. But we, as the court, or whoever that may be, we have a responsibility to save this individual. You know why? Because we don't just say, oh, this guy died, so therefore that guy should die. We don't always say that. There are times when we say that. But we don't just say it willy-nilly. Right? So this guy who killed someone, we don't just say, okay, now kill him, if he did it unintentionally. There's a certain level of guilt he has when it comes to Egla Arufa. So the Balaturim suggests three different answers of why, the, why Egla Arufa would be put next to the series of war. The Balaturim, one, one example that the Balaturim suggests is that um, don't put two people who don't like each other next to each other in the war because they might kill each other. And then you know, he'll be seen as a casualty of war and he won't be addressed. And we see that life matters, and therefore we want this guy to be addressed. Another, another possibility is, uh, the Baltarim says, that if you have a dead body, so before you go out to war to do a Muhammad Rishos, make sure that you tend to this body. Make sure you perform the rite of Egla Arufa. Right, so, you know, with, so already we have a couple of answers that sort of explains why this is important. Another suggestion that the Balaturim warns us about is that maybe you, know, you should look out for people committing murder during a time of war when they will likely not be blamed for it, right? So we see from Egla Rufa that we care about a fallen carcass, therefore we should, we should be on the lookout and not let such a thing happen just because we're all of a sudden we're at war. We don't just throw caution into the wind, we don't just throw all of life into the wind just because we know that we're at war right now. And that's the theme here. Right, so you might say, "Oh, look! Look how um, look look how uh, violent and archaic and chaotic the Torah is." And yet, we see the Torah saying, "When you're going out to war, don't destroy all the trees." What's the point? Like you're you're destroying people. You care about the trees. What's the Chumash telling us? War does not mean that we just throw everything out and say, "Okay, uh, listen, I'm at war now. I'm going to be an animal now." See, because when we do a war, we do it as a tikkun. We do it letachlis. We don't do it as tashchis. We don't just do things maliciously because, oh yeah, we're going out to war now, so let's let's put on our war paint and go crazy. We do war when the Torah tells us to do war because that's apparently what we have to do. But we don't do what's beyond necessary. We don't torture. We don't, you know, we don't just uh, we don't just steamroll over all the trees. We don't just send every single person out if it's Melchemes Rishos. And even when we have to kill everybody, the Torah doesn't even say the words kill them. It says, Lo neshama, in the passive. Don't let the neshama survive. You could see from the way the Torah speaks, even if it's telling us to do something that we feel queasy about, the Chumash is very careful to say it in a sensitive way. Why is this important? It's important because of a principle that actually came up in the daf recently on Sukkah, in daf Lamed Beis, with a famous pasuk from Mishlei, that its ways are pleasant and 
all of it, all of its pathways are of peace. V'chol nesivoseh all of them. Sometimes it doesn't feel like all of them are that way. But if you understand how much the Torah cares and values life, from Egla Rufa, from Are Miklat, from all, several laws in the war series, literally instructing us the right and wrong way to do war, that we don't just kill all the trees, we don't just send every person out, we offer them peace before we go in. The Chomish is trying to tell us that even in the seemingly most, uh, you know, the seemingly most dark places, the most violent and aggressive places where we have to be brazen. And there the Chumash is telling us, even there, even if we don't see how it is. But the Torah is careful and sensitive about all of these things. It's something that's quite mind-boggling. But if, if, if you think about it, the Torah is making an argument for morals in the place of war, for ethics in the place of war, for peace in the place of war. It's, you know, it's, it's almost breathtaking. But that, that, I think, is what the Torah tells us. And this is where I think we can bridge the two topics. Right? We spoke about various leadership figures, authority figures, and then we spoke about anti-leaders. We spoke about rebels who are, who are anti-establishment. You know, that, that seems to be blurred nowadays. Right? And we, so you know, if, if I have time for any more political references, I'll throw them in. Um, but... The, the, the line, those lines are blurred. But where do you think those lines could be most blurred? In the place of war, where we think that everyone is just aggressive, everyone is just fighting, all is fair in love and war. And the answer is, even in the place of war, the Torah teaches us how to be leaders, how to strive for peace, how to do things in the most peaceful and sensitive way, even when we're doing the most seemingly evil thing, the most brazen thing. And the Chumash has, has a code of conduct, even for that. And therefore, we continue to be an orbogayim in that kind of way. We light the way for the world around us. And that teaches us that, you know, being leadership figures is something that we all have to do. It's not just something that's reserved for various individuals within the nation, but even a soldier at war who has to act in what some would say is like an animal, he's, he's forbidden to do so. There's, there's a right and wrong way. And that really takes us through... Parshas Shoftim, but we have to consider while we're now here, within the war series, once again, is why the war series seems to kind of get cut short by Egla Arufa. Egla Arufa is not a war topic. It sheds light on war, that we care about casualties, that we should not treat casualties casually. But the war series apparently continues into next week's Parsha, Parshas Kiseitse, which poses a new challenge um, in a certain sense for Sefer Devarim, but it's also an old challenge that we saw in Parshas Mishpatim, Parshas Kedoshim, a little bit last week, but, but mainly we don't find it anywhere like we find it here. We have the most mitzvahs in Parshas Kiseitse. So we'll try to look for some structure in that next week by Ezra Hashem. But in the meantime, that takes care of Parshas Shoftim. So I wish you an absolutely wonderful Shabbos. And I thank you for joining us here at the database.